Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism, we've just finished a chapter on technology and the pros and cons, the good side, the bad side, and why we should steer towards the good, better uses for it. This week we will be beginning a new chapter called The Forms of Freedom, and given the context of earlier stuff in the book, is probably about advocating for people's ability to live or thrive as opposed to merely surviving and ways that people could not perhaps be stuck on the treadmill of a capitalist system. So, let's dive right in. The Forms of Freedom Freedom has its forms. However personalized, individuated, or Dada-esque may be the attack upon prevailing institutions, a liberatory revolution always poses the questions of what social forms will replace existing ones. At one point or another, a revolutionary people must deal with how it will manage the land and the factories from which it acquires the means of life. It must deal with the manner in which it will arrive at decisions that affect the community as a whole. Thus, if revolutionary thought is to be taken at all seriously, it must speak directly to the problems and forms of social management. It must open to public discussion the problems that are involved in a creative development of liberatory social forms. Although there is no theory of liberation that can replace experience, there is sufficient historical experience, and a sufficient theoretical formulation of the issues involved, to indicate what social forms are consistent with the fullest realization of personal and social freedom. What social forms will replace existing ones depends on what relations free people decide to establish between themselves. Every personal relationship has a social dimension. Every social relationship has a deeply personal side to it. Ordinarily, these two aspects and their relationship to each other are mystified and difficult to see clearly. The institutions created by hierarchical society, especially the state institutions, produce the illusion that social relations exist in a universe of their own, in specialized political or bureaucratic compartments. In reality, there exists no strictly impersonal political or social dimension. All the social institutions of the past and present depend on the relations between people in daily life, especially in those aspects of daily life which are necessary for survival, the production and distribution of the means of life, the rearing of the young, the maintenance and reproduction of life, the liberation of man, not in some vague, historical, moral, or philosophical sense, but in the intimate details of day-to-day -day life, is a profoundly social act and raises the problem of social forms as modes of relations between individuals. The relationship between the social and the individual requires special emphasis in our time, for never before have personal relations become so impersonal and never before have social relations become so asocial. Bourgeois society has brought all relations between people to the highest point of abstraction by divesting them of their human content and dealing with them as objects. The object, the commodity, 
takes on roles that formerly belonged to the community. Exchange relationships. Actualized in most cases as money relationships. Supplant nearly all other modes of human relationships. In this respect, the bourgeois commodity system becomes the historical culmination of all societies, pre-capitalist as well as capitalist, in which human relationships are mediated rather than direct or face-to-face. The mediation of social relations. To place this development in clearer perspective, let us briefly look back in time and establish what the mediation of social relations has come to mean. The earliest social specialists who interposed themselves between people, the priests and tribal chiefs who permanently mediated their relations, established the formal conditions for hierarchy and exploitation. These formal conditions were consolidated and deepened by technological advances, advances which provided only enough material surplus for the few to live at the expense of the many. The tribal assembly, in which all members of the community had decided and directly managed their common affairs, dissolved into chieftainship, and the community dissolved into social classes. Despite the increasing investiture of social control in a handful of men, and even one man, the fact remains that men in pre-capitalist societies mediated the relations of other people. Council supplanting assembly, and chieftainship supplanted council. In bourgeois society, on the other hand, the mediation of social relations by men is replaced by the mediation of social relations by things, by commodities. Having brought social mediation to the highest point of impersonality, commodity society turns attention to mediation as such. It brings into question all forms of social organization based on indirect representation, on the management of public affairs by the few, on the distinctive existence of concepts and practices such as election, legislation, administration. The most striking evidence of this social refocusing are the demands voiced almost intuitively by increasing numbers of American youth for tribalism and community. These demands are regressive only in the sense that they go back temporally to pre-hierarchical forms of freedom. They are profoundly progressive in the sense that they go back structurally to non-hierarchical forms of freedom. By contrast, the traditional revolutionary demand for council forms of organization, what Hannah Arendt describes as the revolutionary heritage, does not break completely with the terrain of hierarchical society. Workers' councils originate as class councils. Unless one assumes that workers are driven by their interests as workers to revolutionary measures against hierarchical society, an assumption I flatly deny, then these councils can be used just as much to perpetuate class society as to destroy it. Footnote 30. We shall see, in fact, that the council form contains many structural limitations which favour the development of hierarchy. 
for the present, it suffices to say that most advocates of workers' councils tend to conceive of people primarily as economic entities, either as workers or non-workers. This conception leaves the one-sidedness of the self completely intact. Man is viewed as a bifurcated being, the product of a social development that divides man from man and each man from himself. Nor is this one-sided view completely corrected by demands for workers' management of production and the shortening of the work week. For these demands leave the nature of the work process and the quality of the workers' free time completely untouched. If workers' councils and workers' management of production do not transform the work into a joyful activity, free time into a marvellous experience, and the workplace into a community, then they remain merely formal structures. In fact, class structures. They perpetuate the limitations of the proletariat as a product of bourgeois social conditions. Indeed, no movement that raises the demand for workers' councils can be regarded as revolutionary unless it tries to promote sweeping transformations in the environment of the workplace. Finally, council organizations are forms of mediated relationships rather than face-to-face relationships. Unless these mediated relationships are limited by direct relationships, leaving policy decisions to the latter and mere administration to the former, the councils tend to become focuses of power. Indeed, unless the councils are finally assimilated by a popular assembly and factories are integrated into new types of community, Both the councils and the factories perpetuate the alienation between man and man and between man and work. Fundamentally, the degree of freedom in a society can be gauged by the kind of relationships that unite the people in it. If these relationships are open, unalienated, and creative, the society will be free. If structures exist that inhibit open relationships, either by coercion or mediation, then freedom will not exist, whether there is workers' management of production or not. For all the workers will manage will be production, the preconditions of life, not the conditions of life. No mode of social organization can be isolated from the social conditions it is organizing. Both councils and assemblies have furthered the interests of hierarchical society as well as those of revolution. To assume that the forms of freedom can be treated merely as forms would be as absurd as to assume that legal concepts can be treated merely as questions of jurisprudence. The form and content of freedom, like law and society, are mutually determined. By the same token, there are forms of organization that promote and forms that vitiate the goal of freedom, and social conditions favor sometimes the one and sometimes the other. To one degree or another, these forms either alter the individual who uses them or inhibit his further development. This article does not dispute the need for workers' councils. More properly, factory committees as a revolutionary means of appropriating the bourgeois economy. 
On the contrary, experience has shown repeatedly that the factory committee is vitally important as an initial form of economic administration. But no revolution can settle for councils and committees as its final, or even its exemplary, mode of social organization, any more than workers' management of production can be regarded as a final mode of economic administration. Neither of these two relationships is broad enough to revolutionize work, free time, needs, and the structure of society as a whole. In this article, I take the revolutionary aspect of the council and committee forms for granted. My purpose is to examine the conservative traits in them which vitiate the revolutionary project. It has always been fashionable to look for models of social institutions in the so-called proletarian revolutions of the past hundred years. The Paris Commune of 1871, the Russian Soviets of 1905 and 1917, the Spanish Revolutionary Syndicates of the 1930s, and the Hungarian Councils of 1956 have all been raked over for examples of future social organization. What, it is worth asking, do these models of organization have in common? The answer is very little, other than their limitations as mediated forms. Spain, as we shall see, provides a welcome exception. The others were either too short-lived or simply too distorted to supply us with more than the material for myths. The Paris Commune may be revered for many reasons, for its intoxicating sense of libidinal release, for its radical populism, for its deeply revolutionary impact on the oppressed, or for its defiant heroism in defeat. But the commune itself, viewed as a structural entity, was little more than a popular municipal council. More democratic and plebeian than other such bodies, the council was nevertheless structured along parliamentary lines. It was elected by citizens, grouped according to geographic constituencies. In combining legislation with administration, the commune was hardly more advanced than the municipal bodies in the US today. Fortunately, revolutionary Paris largely ignored the commune after it was installed. The insurrection, the actual management of the city's affairs, and finally the fighting against the Versailles, were undertaken mainly by the popular clubs, the neighborhood vigilance committees, and the battalions of the National Guard. Had the Paris Commune, the municipal council, survived, it is extremely doubtful that it could have avoided conflict with these loosely formed street and militia formations. Indeed, by the end of April, some six weeks after the insurrection, the Commune constituted an all-powerful Committee of Public Safety, a body redolent with memories of the Jacobin dictatorship and the terror, which suppressed not only the right in the Great Revolution of a century earlier, but also the left. In any case, history left the Commune a mere three weeks of life, two of which were consumed in the death throes of barricade fighting against Thiers and the Versailles. It does not malign the Paris Commune to divest it of historical burdens it never actually carried. The Commune was a festival of the streets, 
its partisans, primarily handicraftsmen, itinerant intellectuals, the social debris of a pre-capitalist area, and lumpens. To regard these strata as proletarian is to caricature the word to the point of absurdity. The industrial proletariat constituted a minority of the communards. Footnote 31. The commune was the last great rebellion of the French Saint-Coulant, a class that lingered on in Paris for a century after the Great Revolution. Ultimately, this highly mixed stratum was destroyed not by the guns of the Versailles, but by the advance of industrialism. The Paris Commune of 1871 was largely a city council established to coordinate municipal administration under conditions of revolutionary unrest. The Russian Soviets of 1905 were largely fighting organizations, established to coordinate near-insurrectionary strikes in St. Petersburg. These councils were based almost entirely on factories and trade unions. There was a delegate for every 500 workers. Where individual factories and shops contained a smaller number, they were grouped together for voting purposes. And additionally, delegates from trade unions and political parties. The Soviet mode of organization took on its clearest and most stable form in St. Petersburg, where the Soviet contained about 400 delegates at its highest point, including representatives of the newly organized professional unions. The St. Petersburg Soviet rapidly developed from a large strike committee into a parliament of all oppressed classes, broadening its representation, demands, and responsibilities. Delegates were admitted from cities outside St. Petersburg, political demands began to dominate economic ones, and links were established with peasant organizations and their delegates admitted into the deliberations of the body. Inspired by St. Petersburg, Soviets sprang up in all the major cities and towns of Russia and developed into an incipient revolutionary power counterposed to all the governmental institutions of the autocracy. The St. Petersburg Soviet lasted less than two months. Most of its members were arrested in December 1905. To a large extent, the Soviet was deserted by the St. Petersburg proletariat, which never rose in armed insurrection, and whose strikes diminished in size and militancy as trade revived in the late autumn. Ironically, the last stratum to advance beyond the early militancy of the Soviet were the Moscow students, who rose in insurrection on December 22nd, and during five days of brilliantly conceived urban guerrilla warfare, reduced local police and military forces to near impotence. The students received very little aid from the workers in the city. Their street battles might have continued indefinitely, even in the face of massive proletarian apathy, had the Tsar's guard not been transported to Moscow by the railway workers on one of the few operating lines to the city. The Soviets of 1917 were the true heirs of the Soviets of 1905, and to distinguish the two from each other, as some writers occasionally do, is spurious. Like their predecessors of 12 years earlier, the 1917 Soviets were based largely on factories, trade unions, and party organizations, but they were expanded to include delegates from army groups and a sizable number of stray radical intellectuals. 
The Soviets of 1917 reveal all the limitations of Sovietism. Though the Soviets were invaluable as local fighting organizations, their national congresses proved to be increasingly unrepresentative bodies. The congresses were organized along very hierarchical lines. Local Soviets in cities, towns, and villages elected delegates to district and regional bodies. These elected delegates to the actual nationwide congresses. In larger cities, representation to the congresses was less indirect, but it was indirect nonetheless. From the voter in a large city to the municipal Soviet, and from the municipal Soviet to the congress. In either case, the congress was separated from the mass of voters by one or two more representative levels. The Soviet congresses were scheduled to meet every three months. This permitted far too long a time span to exist between sessions. The first congress, held in June 1917, had some 800 delegates. Later congresses were even larger, numbering a thousand or more delegates. To expedite the work of the congresses, and to provide continuity of function between the tri-monthly sessions, the congresses elected an executive committee, fixed at not more than 200 in 1918, and expanded to a maximum of 300 in 1920. This body was to remain more or less in permanent session, but it too was regarded as unwieldy, and most of its responsibilities after the October Revolution were turned over to a small Council of People's Commissars. Having once acquired control of the Second Congress of Soviets in October 1917, the Bolsheviks found it easy to centralize power in the Council of Commissars and later in the political bureau of the Communist Party. Opposition groups in the Soviets either left the Second Congress, or were later expelled from all Soviet organs. The tri-monthly meetings of the Congresses were permitted to lapse. The completely Bolshevik Executive Committee and Council of People's Commissars simply did not summon them. Finally, the Congresses were held only once a year. Similarly, the intervals between the meetings of district and regional Soviets grew increasingly longer, and even the meetings of the executive committee, created by the Congress as a body in permanent session, became increasingly infrequent until finally they were only held three times a year. The power of the local Soviets passed into the hands of the executive committee, the power of the executive committee passed into the hands of the Council of People's Commissars. And finally, the power of the Council of People's Commissars passed into the hands of the political bureau of the Communist Party. That the Russian Soviets were incapable of providing the anatomy for a truly popular democracy is to be ascribed not only to their hierarchical structure, but also to their limited social roots. The insurgent military battalions, from which the Soviets drew their original striking power, were highly unstable, especially after the final collapse of the Tsarist armies. The newly formed Red Army was recruited, disciplined, centralized, and tightly controlled by the Bolsheviks. Except for partisan bands and naval forces, Soviet military bodies remained politically inert through the Civil War. 
The peasant villages turned inward toward their local concerns and were apathetic about national problems. This left the factories as the most important political base of the Soviets. Here we encounter a basic contradiction in class concepts of revolutionary power. Proletarian socialism. Precisely because it emphasizes that power must be based exclusively on the factory, creates the conditions for a centralized, hierarchical political structure. However much its social position is strengthened by a system of self-management, the factory is not an autonomous social organism. The amount of social control the factory can exercise is fairly limited, for every factory is highly dependent for its operation and its very existence upon other factories and sources of raw materials. Ironically, the Soviets, by basing themselves primarily in the factory and isolating the factory from its local environment, shifted power from the community and the region to the nation, and eventually from the base of society to its summit. The Soviet system consisted of an elaborate scheme of mediated social relationships, knitted along nationwide class lines. Perhaps the only instance where a system of working-class self-management succeeded as a mode of class organization was in Spain, where anarcho-syndicalism attracted a large number of workers and peasants to its banner. The Spanish anarcho-syndicalists consciously sought to limit the tendency towards centralization. The CNT, Confederacy Nacional del Trabajo, the large anarcho-syndicalist union in Spain created a dual organization with an elected committee system to act as a control on local bodies and national congresses. The assemblies had the power to revoke their delegates to the council and countermand council decisions. For all practical purposes, the higher bodies of the CNT functioned as coordinating bodies. Let there be no mistake about the effectiveness of this scheme of organization. It imparted to each member of the CNT a weighty sense of responsibility, a sense of direct, immediate, and personal influence in the activities and policies of the Union. This responsibility was exercised with a high-mindedness that made the CNT the most militant, as well as the largest, revolutionary movement in Europe during the interwar decades. The Spanish Revolution of 1936 put the CNT system to a practical test, and it worked fairly well. In Barcelona, CNT workers seized the factories, transportation facilities, and utilities, and managed them along anarcho-syndicalist lines. It remains a matter of record, attested to by visitors of almost every political persuasion, that the city's economy operated with remarkable success and efficiency despite the systemic sabotage practiced by the bourgeois Republican government and the Spanish Communist Party. The experiment finally collapsed in shambles when the central government's assault troops occupied Barcelona in May 1937, following an uprising of the proletariat. Despite their considerable influence, the Spanish anarchists had virtually no roots outside certain sections of the working class and peasantry. The movement was limited primarily to industrial Catalonia, the coastal Mediterranean areas, rural Aragon, and Andalusia. 
What destroyed the experiment was its isolation within Spain itself and the overwhelming forces, Republican as well as Fascist and Stalinist as well as Bourgeois, that were mobilized against it. Footnote 32. It would be fruitless to examine in detail the council modes of organization that emerged in Germany in 1918 and the Astorias in 1934 and in Hungary in 1956. The German councils were hopelessly perverted. The so-called majority, reformist, social democrats succeeded in gaining control of the newly formed councils and using them for counter-revolutionary ends. In Hungary and Astorias, the councils were quickly destroyed by counter-revolution. But there is no reason to believe that, had they developed further, they would have avoided the fate of the Russian Soviets. History shows that the Bolsheviks were not the only ones to distort the council mode of operation. Even in anarcho-syndicalist Spain, there is evidence that by 1937, the committee system of the CNT was beginning to clash with the assembly system. Whatever the outcome might have been, the whole experiment was ended by the assault of the communists and their republican government against Barcelona. The fact remains that council modes of organization are not immune to centralization, manipulation, and perversion. These councils are still particularistic, one-sided, and mediated forms of social management. At best, they can be the stepping stones to a decentralized society. At worst, they can easily be integrated into hierarchical forms of social organization. And that is going to do it for this week. Next time we'll be continuing with this chapter as we finish out this main first section of the book. The structure is a bit funny. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find it and more of his work on there. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about all sorts of different media. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping and get lots of bonus shows there too. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>